Coming up, what an excellent day for deep discussions. folks, and welcome to Minute 26 of The Exorcist Minute, a show where we endeavor to examine, extrapolate, and excavate The Exorcist Minute by Terrifying Minute. My name is Lester Clark. And I'm Keenan Diaz. And we'll be your holy guides on this journey through what some have called the scariest movie of all time. So our minute begins with Chris asking where'd Reagan get that idea? And ends with Damien carrying two beers through a crowded pub. (laughs) But before we join our gloomy priest for a pint, let's hold up, let's back up, rewind, and yeah, where did Reagan get that idea? That idea being the idea that Chris, her mom, is going to marry Burke Dennings. And now I see why Friedkin decided to have Reagan reading a tabloid in that previous minute, because that is definitely one possible source from which this distressing bit of information could come. Uh, Reagan persists, but you like him. And Chris answers with what I think is the best answer. Of course I like him. I like pizzas too, but I'm not going to marry one. But that doesn't get Reagan to laugh. And we were talking about in previous minutes, right? Chris knows Reagan's humor and like Dumbbird and Stinkpot and, you know, whatever, <laughs> Bareface. Um, I mean, it's not my humor, but whatever. Yeah, humor, yeah. yeah. But, um, but like we get this idea that Chris knows, you know, how to, how to get Reagan to laugh, but this doesn't work. I like pizzas, but I'm not going to marry one. Um, I thought she's, that was a very good joke. I thought that was excellent. <laughs> I, I, I would personally, I would give I that a 10 out of 10, yes. right? We're just, we're just in the room, like in the back, we hold up the, you know, the, the cards. We're like 10, 9.5, right? It was, it was a good joke, Chris. That was very good. Um, but no, not for Reagan. She's on a singular track. And now comes the real question. You don't like him like daddy? So here it is. Here's the thing that's bothering Reagan. Well, where else would you think that she would get it from, from, there's limited options from Sharon or her father. Well, 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 I have a whole thing on that. Oh, goodness. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but that got me wondering, uh, like, where were we in the zeitgeist about divorce in the early 70s? Like, I vaguely remember growing up in the 80s that it was like uh, permeating throughout children's television programs, children's media, attempting to, like, inform kids about the concept in this healthy way. But even in those programs, it seemed like a relatively – new thing like this is a thing that happens now and it's normal and it's not your fault like that was always the thing right like it's not your fault because that's where a child's mind would naturally go like why why don't you know my mom and dad want to live together anymore is it like does it have something to do with me and so now you get these programs attempting to explain this new concept in a healthy way new new to you know children um But I'm curious, when did it become like socially acceptable to talk about or depict in movies? And then also, when did it start getting depicted in movies? Like, what was the attitude? Like, like are are people watching this in the 70s being like, oh, she's divorced. No wonder the devil shows up. (laughs) That was kind of the common thing in in movies up until I would say the, oh... You know, there's not like a definite time where that that is lifted, but mm. I, I suppose like the early '60s, it would be it'd be incredibly difficult to find uh, positive portrayals of of divorce. Um, there's even in the 1950s a series of melodramas, uh, like one with Jane Wyman and Rock Hudson, where she's a little bit older. That's called um, "All That Heaven Allows," the Douglas Sirk movie, 
and she's a widow and and she meets a younger man and everyone's still gossiping about her like how could she do this um when her kids still live at home how could she do this so soon after her husband dies and how could she do it with a a younger man who doesn't have money it's unfair to him that he has to rely on your money and it's unfair to your kids that they are supporting uh, your new boyfriend with your father's or with their father's money so even even the idea of a widow remarrying too early was taboo Wow, and I'm thinking about. So I don't. I don't know if I have a good answer of when, because it was pretty gradual. Hmm. Um, there were rules in place uh, that that gov- governed content in films. That's called the Production Code or the Hayes Code or the the Breen Office. You'll hear all those th- things. Um, but we're talking about essentially the same ideas, and and that would discourage um, showing adultery in films. Okay. So amongst other things like uh, violence and sex and gay people and drug use, adultery was one that was uh, that was sort of taboo. And uh, it said that if you were going to be an adulterer, you would have to leave your, um, you know, you wouldn't be able to leave your husband or wife. You'd have to go back to them. You have to uphold marriage. And sometimes it meant that adultering characters died. That was how we resolved that. Oh, okay. Hmm. But if you think about that, one of the things that suggests if movies always have adulterers or people thinking about leaving their wives or leaving their husbands, either staying with their husbands and wives or dying, then that precludes you from stories of, say, a woman who leaves her domestically violent spouse. Right. Right. So that's just something you can't have on there. Like, oh, if your husband is so dangerous and bad that you're worried about your safety or your children, that's not something you could see in movies and find a model for. Hmm. Or, or like even have like in this story where like, so, uh, like Chris just as a single mom is trying her best to hold everything up, right? Like, and, mm-hmm. and make this life for her daughter. Like that's not like we see that now is like, oh, she's, she's the good guy. She's trying to make like all of this happen for the sake of her daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, Wow. Yeah. So you didn't really have role models if you were in that situation as a single mother. Um, in television, you know, the Mary Tyler Moore show, probably. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So that came out in 1970. And, and Mary Tyler Moore had already been on a show called The Dick Van Dyke Show, mm. where she was Laura Petrie. And she was, um, in many ways, the best of the 1960s, uh, like, stay-at-home mom characters. She's very, very funny and and very independent. And it's a real partnership with her and her husband. And it's, it's, it's a great portrayal. And then she got her own show in 1970. And they're like, well, now she's older than most characters would be in a sitcom, you know, about a single girl so how do we explain that like you know she's like oh my gosh she's in her early 30s how do do we explain that she's not married and so the thought was that oh she's a newly divorced woman and she's moving to minneapolis and they're like no no we can't have that because people will sort of assume that she had divorced dick van dyke oh my gosh (laughs) so so they make some you know that would have been a bold choice but they make a kind of equally bold choice that she's in her early 30s and she does she has not been married and she decides not to get married and be a career woman instead interesting because those are because those literally are the options. Then, like you either are a career woman or you are married. Yeah. And then there was a show a little earlier than that called Julia, which you might not know, which is um, with Diane Carroll, and she's a single mother. She's a widow, mm-hmm. and she's a, bl- a black woman, um, Diane Carroll, and and so Julia is a nurse, and her husband has died in Vietnam as a lieutenant, I believe. And so she's raising her her kid, her son, all alone. And so a lot of people praise Julia because it is this. Um, uh, non-stereotypical look at black life. She's a nurse. She's educated. Her her husband um, was in the military and died, and they live kind of a um, you know middle class life. And then other people, especially in the black community, there, there's still debates about that. Like that's that's our depiction of um, of black life on television has so little to do with a lot of black people's experience in um, the cities. You know who can't find education or have. Um, 
there I've seen both. I've seen arguments that like what they should have done with Julia is have a father in the picture because we don't have a lot of depictions of father, black fathers in media. Um, you know, so, so it was trying to, ha- so there's debate on all sides, which happens when you only have one show about black people on TV at a time, because <laughs> then that's a stand in for everybody's black right. experience. But. And probably like written by white people. So, um, yes, yes, yes. That was, yeah, that was written by yeah. white people. Right? And when you said like, like can't find education, you meant like it was denied. It was them. denied like, them. Right. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. So some people say like, oh, it's great. Do we have this positive portrayal? But other people said that like her being a widow as opposed to a divorced mother, but that is not really expressing how Julia would be a single mother in reality. I see. Huh. I, I like how we've already seen a character light up in front of his aging mother, like light up a cigarette. And in this minute, we're going to see the same character drinking at a bar, but we just had this whole talk about divorce because divorce is like so like mm. like on another level. It's like oh, we're depicting that on on screen. That's uh, oh know. gosh, yeah. There's no MPA rating for divorce, like rated PG thirteen for talk of divorce. Wow, but that would be more disturbing to me as a child than seeing someone smoking a cigarette. That was that was the thing that got me. Like in in the last minute, right? He's talking about it's like it's like mom, I want to move move you out of here. It's like this is a this is a dump. This is a horrible place. And then just like. Poof, like on that, like there's so much smoke. I'm like, Timmy, what are you doing? Of course, we talked uh, previously about my uh, McDonald's birthday as a child. I must have been three or four and how big of a deal that was. But you used to smoke at McDonald's. There were ashtrays in McDonald's, even though it was a kid's restaurant. I vaguely remember. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. They were just they were just part of the culture, right? And, and now we're back to cigarettes. Oh my god! Yeah, don't um, you remember in like Chuck E. Cheese? It, 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 we grew up in Las Vegas, both of us. So Chuck E. Cheese basically, um, you know, was a was a casino. It had that smoke. Yeah. It was just. A, <laughs> uh, I saw a tweet that they called it a child a child rat casino. <laughs> yeah, it is the, kind of like it's a kids casino, right? Like, yeah, and in the eighties, it, it certainly had smoke everywhere. Yeah. Wow. Oh my god. <sighs> okay. Well. Back to, back to divorce. Um, no. Yay. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. But like, okay. So now I feel like we would be like, oh man, Chris is trying so hard. Like you said, Keenan, like she's got to play uh, dad and mom to this kid, right? She's, she's working so hard and this poor kid is just, you know, uh, like in the middle of it, you know? And once again, we have that motif of both mothers and fathers. And there's a really cool YouTuber by the name of Comic Book Girl 19 who has done an entire like like live stream book club discussion on our book, on The Exorcist. And she made a comment that stuck with me um, at this point in the book. She said something like, there are no fathers in this house. Uh, Reagan's father and God the father are gone from this house. Mm-hmm. And I thought, I was like, huh, that's, that, that's an interesting way to think about it. Um, and again, we're going to have some fathers coming in a little bit later. Um, but for now, it's just mom. Uh, and it's all up to mom to figure out what's going on and how to fix it. And right now, at least, it still doesn't seem like anything out of the ordinary is going on. We're getting the first hints of what could simply be a, a little girl who is coming to terms with her parental situation. And I say simply when, in fact, this is not a simple thing at all. It's a, it's a very heavy and big thing and quite a lot to grapple with, even without demons and exorcisms, right? Yeah, I think that that's, you know... That's one of the strengths of this movie is that it is so incredibly character based. It is so much on just simple 
again, seemingly simple performances of these actors. It's not about all the pyrotechnics that will come later on. I mean, it takes it takes quite a while um, before we get to the real the real horror stuff where we see a monster. It's not uncommon, I suppose, for good monster movies to to hold off on the reveal of the monster until later. But we don't, as in you know, a lot of Exorcist ripoffs start with um, you know characters getting ripped to shreds and dying, and and then um, then we reset. But here we have a long, long ramp up, and I think it really pays off that we we are totally invested in their character drama well before we start adding the complications of demons. Absolutely, yes. Um, and to to speak to that, Keenan, like we were talking in our Halloween episode about like the slasher movies, right? Like mm-hmm. Michael Myers and Jason and Freddy and all of those, right? And it's like there, it's like you know, bodies are a dime a dozen, right? Like right. you know, you, you hack and slash your way through like a multiple characters, and it it you know, it's almost like a video game type thing, like mm-hmm. where it's like, oh, there's there's that red shirt gone, there's that person gone, you know? Yeah. Um, and the fun of it is is then seeing how creative the kills can be, or in what surprising situations, and you are you really are laughing along with a good slasher film a lot of the time because you're like oh well, that's creative that's fun yeah and i'm not i'm not dissing those films they have they have their own kind of like mm-hmm. um you know function and flavor and everything like that but um like yeah in in this type of horror film like we we get invested with these characters first and then when the when the you know spooky stuff starts happening we're like oh no like not reagan not chris mm-hmm. but like i said yeah forget all that like like demon stuff for just a second and try to think how like kids and families had it back you know in the 70s going through something like this without resources without counseling or at least counseling as it is today without the societal support that we now have which is by no means perfect even now but which is a world away at this point in time right, right. and, and the, without the the depictions of divorce in media and showing little girls that it's okay and and that they can get past it yeah, right. In the same way that, you know, the scenes with like Karis and his mom are the hardest in this movie for me to watch. These scenes where the divorce is sort of brought to the forefront make me like way more uncomfortable than any like, you know, head spinning or, or uh, spider walking. So here, like I said, we see the first little hint of what could be bothering Reagan. And after Chris assures her that there's nothing to worry about, that she and Burke are just friends, Reagan says, well, I heard differently and chris <laughs> says oh you did what did you hear and yeah okay like hang on pause yeah what did you hear reagan and from whom and like this time around like like i said right this line really stuck out for me like who are you hearing this stuff from you know who i think it is keenan well okay is, what do you think it is i i would say sharon uh, you would say sharon oh he, i can't who else does she have to talk to oh my god it's sharon or her father um and her, she, and then we see in the next scene that she hasn't talked to her father keenan who the hell does she have to talk to <laughs> keenan you know who i think it is no i think it's howdy no <laughs> who is she spending all that time oh talking to on the ouija board Lester, and what are they terrifying what are they talking about <laughs> what would they talk oh i had never put that together right where would she get it from and now i understand why we had that scene again like with the sensational tabloid that's a red herring that's a uh-huh. distraction from what is really going on and you know what keenan hot take just maybe a little bit early mm. i don't think this captain howdy fellow is a very nice guy <laughs> oh but he's got such a nice name right I'm, you know what <laughs> I'm going to go so far as to say I don't even think he's a real captain. That's that's stolen valor. Nowadays, that gets you beat up at the mall if you go and, oh, I'm Captain Howdy. Could you spare a dime for me? Could you help an old <laughs> altar boy, Father? <laughs> They're like, those ribbons are for the Marines. <laughs> are you here? Oh, my God. But yeah, so, but no, think about it, Keenan. I ask the questions and he makes the answers. 
I don't like this. <laughs> That's what she said. <laughs> yeah, you're right. And I can see it now. She's downstairs. She's downstairs on that Ouija board mm-hmm. talking to Captain Howdy, just trying to get trying to get advice from a friend. Right. Probably probably asking stuff like, hey, does mom still love dad? Does mom still love me? Mm-hmm. And again, hot take. I don't think Captain Howdy is really her friend. No. Just a hunch. And we'll have to see. In in later minutes, I guess, but that's like her I think, only friend. Yeah, that's her right. <laughs> oh, oh. Uh, that had never occurred to me, and that is really sad and really scary. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, of course they must talk. About, she doesn't say. She doesn't say like what kind of things she talks to Captain Howdy about. Right. And you notice she doesn't say like, like, well, I heard differently. It's like, who did you hear from? And she's like, really like, well, you know, I just heard. Right. She doesn't want to say. Kind of in that same way that like when Chris finds the Ouija board, she's like, hey, have you been playing with this? Yeah, you know. And she she like gets a little distant. Right. And I don't know. It's just making me making me wonder. Um, in the screenplay, Reagan says, I just heard dot, dot, dot. Mm-hmm. And so then, you know, this could be an early this is an early draft of the screenplay. Maybe there is a rewrite, but also maybe with the kind of um, more improvisational directing style that comes about in the 1970s, especially with child actors that potentially, you, you know, they, you might do this with an actor every once in a while. Like if it's a dot, 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 and you might ask the scene partner to not continue on until and let that person actually finish that thought. Mm-hmm. And so you get this really interesting line reading of that. I heard differently. <laughs> yeah. Really, really cool. Um, Linda Blair moment there. Yeah. Oh, actually I, I didn't even think that that could be like an addition to, uh, an addition made by Linda Blair. It might be. Yeah, I, I'm not. We're not sure where it comes from, but that's not uncommon. Uh, you know, I was I was on set uh, directing a small scene with some student actors, and that was a nice um, a nice exercise to do. Sometimes is to let them. What's the end of that line, and, and let them feel it out. And then on the next take, you know, and then usually you would cut out the improvisation, but it helps the actor on the next take figure out whatever. But mm. yeah, potentially that's still in there. Um, it's interesting that you say that because like in the book too, it's just, well, I heard dot, dot, dot. Right. So this differently is either, is either uh, Linda Blair's own creation, uh, her own like contribution or, you know. Uh, Friedkin or Blatty adding it. Yeah. Right. yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. But yeah, no, that's my, that's my guess is that she heard it from Captain Howdy. Ugh, Captain Howdy is my favorite character, but that's, that's mean. That's death down low. Captain, Captain Howdy. Howdy. <laughs> but it goes like. I don't have notes for this, but like I was thinking about it while I was watching. This kind of follows in line with like typical behavior of a of an abusive relationship too, mm. like a narcissistic type of like, you know, separate you from the rest of your uh, support group, get you away from your family and friends and be like, hey, I'm the only one. I'm the only one uh, who knows you, who understands you, who can help you. Um, and then just like just be really shitty to them. Right. Everyone else is lying to you. They're going to tell you that Burke is just her gay best friend. And I'm telling you, no, Burke is your new father. And so you can't trust anything they say. And you know what, Rags? Oh, wait, no, I don't call you Rags. (laughs) Your mom calls you Rags. You know what, Reagan? I think this Burke guy's got to go. Right, exactly. I can't do it alone, though. I'm too weak and powerless. Oh my god! Oh my god, Keenan, we're 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 putting the pieces together. <laughs> this is our fan fiction. This is our <laughs> from the point of view of of Captain Howdy. Of Captain Howdy, right? This is our this is our head It's okay. Exactly. This is you know the um the Ryan Murphy Nurse Ratched TV show. Oh what? Oh, Wait, you don't what? know about that? <laughs> yes. No, don't. Yeah. Tell me about this. What? Oh, so it's a prequel from the point of view of Nurse Ratched uh, from One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest. And that is, she's, she's probably my favorite character in all of literature. Um, you know, a great book, great movie. Louise Fletcher just passed away a couple of months ago. Oh. 
And, um, and so, yeah, that's how they have to do TV now. They can't, you know, so it's Nurse Ratched, um, and apparently it's pretty good. I, you know, mm-hmm. I, I haven't seen it because I was so opposed to watching it. But that's you can't you can't sell a show that's just about a nurse in the fifties um, who lives in a patriarchal society and then she takes her place at the hospital and becomes the head nurse through scheming and murders and lying. It has mm-hmm. to be a prequel to something else for it to get made. Right. Mm. So we could do our own Ryan Murphy, <laughs> Captain Howdy TV show from the point of view of of Captain Howdy. Just call it Howdy. Wow. Howdy, this fall, FX, Sarah Paulson as Captain Howdy. There's another podcast um, that I want to turn our listeners on to. It's weird. Like, I'm advertising all of these other podcasts. Like, for, like listen to our podcast too, please, though. Um, <laughs> are, are they are they advertising us? We don't know. Well, I, do, I don't think they are. I don't think they know we exist. Um, at, le- at least this one doesn't. But uh, no, there's this other podcast called The Villain Was Right. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. Yeah, and they examine like movies and, and TV shows and big IPs from the villain's perspective. And they did one on uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and they you know they mm-hmm. talked about Nurse Ratchet, and it was uh, it was very interesting. Um, but Keenan, I I I don't know how how sympathetic we can paint Captain Howdy. Uh, Why not? Well, you know what, <laughs> Nurse Ratchet, they made her the hero, and she she goes all right, okay, takes care of business. Let's workshop this. Like what what is what is Captain Howdy's what is what is his origin? What what happened to him? Um, oh geez, well I think he's been he's been disembodied at some point, and he just all he wants is a new body, right? Okay, all right. So we'd have to yeah maleficent him like uh, the Angelina Jolie one, and and we see at the beginning that he has a body and he's beautiful. He's um <laughs> he's like if we're keeping it the Ryan Murphy verse, he's um he's Evan Peters and he's just gorgeous and okay. and he gets disembodied by somebody. You know who it should be, of course, is um, Reagan McNeil's great great grandfather. <laughs> oh, I, I, I was going to say Father Marin. <laughs> oh, 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 no, 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 no. That's <laughs> you don't get how these <laughs> these terrible ripoffs go. <laughs> <laughs> Because that's what really happens, I suppose, in the Exorcist prequels, right? Right, yeah, right, yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's Reagan McNeil's great 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 grandfather in like Victorian England, <laughs> and that way he ha- he has to. It's personal this time. It's personal. He has to get the McNeil family because it's always personal. That's what this is. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love this. I love this, folks. Help us. Help us make this make this Captain Howdy prequel. Mm-hmm. Howdy. I, I'm, I'm all on board for this. Um, Howdy is like, I keep on saying like, like Father Karras is my favorite character. I really like Captain Howdy too. Me too. I like, I like him. I like saying the name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just like everything about that. Yeah. No, it's a, it's a really cool, it's a really cool depiction of like this demonic force that's very like, you know, innocent, but like also kind of, you know, um, mischievous and trickstery. Um, yeah, no, I really like it. I have trouble piecing together Captain, ha- like, like putting in my head. Captain Howdy being the demon from later, he feels distinct to me. And oh. I know that's not true, right? Like Captain Howdy is whatever demon possesses Reagan, but like this early Captain Howdy that's like playing games and, and, and being a trickster. Yeah, I like him the best. Oh, really? Oh, see, Keenan, this is why, this is why we got to get you to that scene, uh, those scenes in the book with uh, Karis mm-hmm. and uh, Reagan, you know, like full on possessed Reagan because he has some he has some convos with Captain Howdy <laughs> that are just like yeah they are so sassy it's like it's it's like you're watching Beetlejuice. <laughs> oh well, you know in so like in our um, Angelina Jolie Maleficent or Sarah Paulson Ryan Murphy Ratchet version of Howdy, um, that demon that possesses Reagan and turns her evil is not Captain Howdy. That is an oh. actual demon that he has to that Captain Howdy needs to be behind the scenes helping 
Father Karras uh, defeat the major demon. So it turns oh. out that our villain is actually a good guy. Oh, wow. I love that. <laughs> and that goes with, oh, okay. Have you heard, have you heard this? Um, there's, I mean, obviously this is not, you know, intended in the movie, but like, it's a fun little, little think piece to, to play around with. But um, as soon as people like started learning more about Pazuzu and learning about like his function in, you know, ancient Mesopotamian uh, uh, society as like this protector of children, you know, against Lamashtu and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Like there's this like, oh, film theory. The demon is actually protecting Reagan. I don't see how. I mean, <laughs> he's eating her flesh. Yeah. Right? Like literally, like I like that. I like it's a fun little thing to think about, but like, I don't know. And, and maybe Keenan, if you and I were writing a prequel, like right. we would, we would do that. But like in this movie, I'm like, no, from what, from what are you protecting? Like, <laughs> no, no, no. Howdy is protecting her from the demon in, in our version. And yes. Howdy, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so Chris reassures Reagan that she and Burke are just friends and kisses her goodnight. And that's the end of that scene. And then we get like the last 10 seconds of this minute, we get a little bit of a rambling man mm-hmm. uh, from the jukebox. Uh, Father Karras is in a bar and he's buying two beers. Um, and now this is a real Georgetown bar known as The Tombs. Oh, which, okay, great. Yeah, is just so appropriate for this film. I love that, <laughs> The Tombs, right? We got all this preoccupation with death. Um, but, and of course we got Ramblin' Man uh, from the Allman Brothers Band. Uh, but at the risk of rambling on in this minute... <laughs> <laughs> I have a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> well, I did. <laughs> I did want to say, you know, um, it, it wasn't. It wasn't too long ago when movies didn't have didn't use you know hits from rock stars uh, in in there. Yeah, um, you know, so that would start to happen in the middle of the nineteen fifties with um, uh, the Blackboard Jungle. Do you know that one? Oh no! Mm. Well, that one—it's a Sidney Poitier movie, an early Sidney Poitier movie, and uh, Glenn Ford is the star, and it's about um, a, a teacher in a um, in an inner city school, and all the kids are delinquents. But it starts with "Rock Around the Clock" and ends with "Rock Around the Clock." Oh wow! And okay. that was like the first time they had used uh, instead of a song from um, from the studio catalog, and instead of like a, uh, a a big band or a jazz song or a um, you know musical like musical for musical theater type song, you know, um, that was the first rock song they'd had. And then they don't do that very often. So hmm. in the rest of the 1950s and 60s, there's not a lot of um, you know character walks into a bar and then we hear something that would be on the radio for the audience at home. That's not really how it would work. Um, and even in like The Graduate, which has this great rock and roll soundtrack by Simon and Garfunkel, right. all those songs by Paul Simon, they were written for The Graduate. Huh. Yeah. So those those are those are not like things that yeah, that you would find on a jukebox somewhere. Interesting. So are we saying like like that this movie, The Exorcist, is like pioneering that or have they, um, had no, they already started? No, I think it would be started... part of a trend. Yeah, it's part okay. of a trend as starting in the late 1960s, the very late 1960s. Um, but, you know, that is – that was that's – if you were five years earlier than this in 1970 uh, – oh, if I can do math – 1970 – 1968 would be five years earlier than this movie. Um, yeah, that would be very, very unusual. Interesting. And would this be, do you think, another case of Carmen coincidence? Oh, I don't know. The Ramblin' Man? Yeah. Like, I mean, talking about Karis, right? Like he's – He's, uh, you know, he's, he's going one way, he's going the other. He's, uh, I don't know. Well, I guess I've never thought about the lyrics of any Almond Brothers band song. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you're probably, but you're probably, probably onto something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, okay. So yeah, we're, we're going to, we're going to leave it here. Um, we're going to pick up in the next minute with Karis bringing those drinks to his table. Who's that other drink for? Is he drinking with somebody or is he just like really stressed? <laughs> Um, we'll have to wait and see. Um, but I think, I think that is it for this minute. Keenan, uh, is there anything else we missed? No, I think we got it. All right. So Keenan, are you thinking what I'm thinking? 
I think I am Lester. Until next time, folks. The, the power, power of Howdy, an origin, origin story, story, compels you. This fall, only on FX. Howdy.